Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 370 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, another instalment of our Location and the Writer series, Carolyn Smales takes us for a soak at the Victorian Baths in Manchester, a self-proclaimed water palace of the Victorian era. Mark Illis explores Blackheath in south-east London and the layers of memory that cluster there, and Claire Fisher wanders the many alleys, nooks and crannies of Leeds and examines their role in inspiring her writing. First, here's Carolyn Smales on the Victoria Baths. I have written dialogue-driven novels and character-driven novels, but all of my novels start with a place. At 18, I left the village where I'd grown up, and I can count on my fingers how many times I've returned. I can't name flamboyant characters or talk fondly about a bus driver or kind-hearted neighbour. Every location I visualise is tainted with a negative memory or recollection of pain. Trauma does that. I blocked my path to belonging there. Self-preservation, perhaps. Now I live in Liverpool, but I'm not a scouser, and when people try to locate my accent, I'm never quite sure where to say I'm from. And, with little doubt, my lack of belonging is why I'm so fascinated by place, why it features so prominently within my novels. I have a yearning for restoration of self through storytelling, a need to dissect the importance of place in my character's personal growth and being so that I can understand my persistence a little more. That hope that someone will read my words, recognise the place I've described and believe I belong there too. An adoption of a location, or even an adoption of me by that setting. A desire for permanence, to be linked forever to something concrete that exists, that has persisted too, a home. And then my fifth novel happened. The original idea was to set it in a lighthouse in North Wales, but Victoria Baths in Manchester was suggested as an alternative location. When it opened in 1906, Victoria Baths was described as a water palace of which every citizen of Manchester can be proud. The magnificent building provided facilities for swimming, bathing and leisure for 87 years until its city council decided it had to close in 1993. Three pools inside, first-class males, second-class males and females. The first-class pool was once kept for the wealthiest Mancunian men. They were given the cleanest water before that water was filtered into the second-class male pool next door and then finally to the female baths. When I first visited, the building had been closed for 30 years, the pools emptied and decay had set in. I'd argue that public spaces are haunted by memories. They are time machines absorbing parts of people's lives, capturing the moments like faded photographs. And walking around Victoria Baths that first time, its ghosts inhabited me. The decaying swimming bath seemed to transform into a sanctuary for the curative effects of water, an end destination for the pilgrimages made there, to visit, to heal, to leave. Intact mosaics remain dotted around the tilework of the many surfaces, celebrating beasts of the sea or lively leaping fish. 
An intricate stained window of a water nymph enticed me to return to water, to wallow, to find joy, to cleanse. And below the swimming pools, dark, winding corridors and rooms held secrets. Abandoned, dusty signs morphed into former celebrations and grandeur. Water dripping into puddles from rusted iron piping provided the musical beats. I left Victoria Baths that first time, unable to shake the sense of a place being altered by the people passing through it. That every person who had visited had left their footprint, handprint, fingerprint. Thousands upon thousands of individuals had walked over the same tiles as me. All of those people who had visited, who had learned to swim there, who had overcome their fear of drowning in pools filled with water. Those moments when they had taken their first unconvincing strokes, their leaps of faith, and quite suddenly were actually staying afloat, pushing through water, conquering fear, becoming master of the element. The swimming champions who had trained there, the physicality of the energy expended under its roof. And those many visitors who had sought the water for medicinal benefit, to purify their souls, to heal their muscles, to lose weight or to lose themselves for the smallest amount of time. The need to return to their origins, forever primal, often pagan. And the countless bodies almost stripped bare, swimwear incorporating modesty to functionality, elemental, physical, the instant attraction, the involuntary reactions, the repulsions too. Victoria Baths remembered all of those moments. The quick glances, the stirrings, the soothings, the passions, the romances. How many amorous encounters had been born, had lived and sometimes died within those walls. How many who were once lost had been found within the building. The false teeth misplaced, the swimwear left behind, the keys, coins, phone numbers on scraps of paper that had fallen out of pockets unnoticed. Those lost, those found. They were the magical moments repeated over and over, again and again through generations and time. They formed the energy, the memories that haunted the building, and during that first visit, they transformed into the seed of a story that I had to tell. The walls talked, and I listened. I walked where others had, and my walking over those tiles connected us all. I added to the building's narrative just by being there. In my novel, Victoria Baths was presented as a haven, a place for the protagonist to belong. Water nymphs, healings and stirrings happened within the water. In the novel, others sought to destroy the building, to alter and to strip away its essence. Yet it existed before the protagonist entered and continued to breathe their stories once they had left. Three years after my first visit there, the crew of the novel's movie returned to the building as their main filming location. They paid to fill one of the pools with freezing cold water. That decision to film at Victoria Baths contributed to its rich history, but also offered financial contribution towards its ongoing maintenance and restoration. I watched the crew struggling to heat the pool in winter, before the cast could swim into the depths and act their parts from a script that I didn't write. My narrative, the cast's individual memories, and the film director's story now all exist, alongside the accounts of every person and every ghost who ever visited Victoria Baths.
Recall is a fragile thing, though. With hindsight, I've created my own chronicle around that very first visit to Victoria Baths. We do that with memory. We're all storytellers who combine imagination with close surveillance of reality. Those two things should really negate each other. However, instead, this time they root me firmly within the building's history. My handprint, footprint and fingerprint too. They've all been added. And now I am forever there. I have altered the building's record and the building has altered me. I have never swam in its water, but instead my novel's plot echoes around the empty pool. There's a paragraph at the end of my fifth book. It answers the question, did an actual place inspire this novel? It explains my reasons for choosing that exact setting with links and details for further reading. Its inclusion introduces and connects each new reader with Victoria Baths, guaranteeing that I will be forever coupled with that place in my continued restoration of self. That was Carolyn Smales. Next, here's Mark Illis on Blackheath. I turn left as I leave home and I walk down Priory Park, my school bag heavy on my shoulder. At the house on the corner, a dog barks ferociously when it hears me, throwing itself against the fence, desperate to get out of its garden. I say dog, it sounds more like a rabid dragon, and even though I walk this way every day and I know all that wild barking is coming, I gasp and jump, and my skin seems to contract. I'm six years old, and I'm terrified of that dog. I step off the pavement and stay well away. Up Manor Way next, where I once found a key lying in the road. I slipped it into a crack in a low wall, and ever since then I always stop, get it out and examine it. A brass Yale key that lies in my palm like a coin. I look at the houses on either side of the road, set back behind neat gardens, and I wonder if this key would let me slip into one of them while everyone was out. Not to steal anything, just to explore, to get a glimpse of the lives of other people. I imagine myself wandering from room to room like a ghost, fingers trailing along the walls. What might I find? A treasure chest, probably, or a dead body. These roads are quiet. There's not much traffic, but while I'm standing here thinking about trespassing, I can hear birdsong, a baby crying behind a window, the wind ruffling the trees. Talking of trees, it's Meadowbank next, where there's a large sycamore on an island in the middle of the road, stretching its boughs over either side like a woman's wide skirt. There's a pile of pine needles on Meadowbank that I've pushed under a bush using the side of my foot. Every day I side-foot some more needles into the pile. I think it might already be the largest pile of pine needles in the world. Up onto Blackheath Park, the long straight road leading away from the village towards school. There's a lot of big boring houses here, but there's also a strange little black house with a winding path up to it and a pool of water contained in the curl of the path. Dull, coppery fish swim in the pool, moving in gloomy, endless circles. The house crouches between two big Victorian piles, shiny and self-contained like a spaceship that's just landed there. It's designed by some famous architect whose name I don't think I ever knew. I always wonder what it looks like inside. 
Is it all black in there? Does it smell of leather and gunmetal? My little Yale key definitely wouldn't work on the front door of this house. I imagine something silver, bigger than my hand, fretted with needles and ridges. Then past what everyone calls the allotments, which aren't allotments at all. The space is a big, tussocky wilderness, with a stream called the Quaggy running alongside it, and a hexagonal concrete bunker squatting in the middle of it. I've played in the bunker many times, even though it's dark, stinks of piss, and has slimy things on its floor. I used to think its presence meant the Germans had got as far as Blackheath during the war, and had been fought off in the Battle of the Allotments. The war ended 18 years before I was born, which felt like the distant past. Left at Brooklands Park, and down a hill lined by parked cars. I try a lot of car doors as I walk down the hill. Again, not because I want to steal anything, just to see if they're unlocked. Several are. This is in the days before car alarms, fortunately. There's something satisfying about the chunky sound of the door opening, the whiff of stale air. And finally, down at the bottom of Brooklands Park is my primary school. Shouts and screams and laughter are coming from the playground, and my friend Johnny is going in. I last walked that route 50 years ago, but it's all still there in my head, step by step, a coherent, logical process, like a story unfolding. Layers of memory cluster around that walk, around the route and the series of landmarks, and the memories come with smells, sounds, sights and moods attached. They're unreliable, of course, these memories, edited and half-forgotten and recomposed by me over the decades. They're shaped and sculpted by emotion, and in fact, they have effectively become emotions. I turn right as I leave home, with my school bag heavy on my shoulder, and I walk down Priory Park. I'm 11 now. Right again, and I'm on Lee Road, and there's the 75 bus stop. I either lean against it, or I sit on the low wall at the edge of the pavement, with my back against a fence. That ferocious dog died a couple of years ago. There's no key, no pine needles, no tree in the middle of the road. I stare at Dr. Thompson's surgery opposite, which from the outside is a house like any other. Cars rumble and growl past, they hiss through puddles, their brakes whine, they accelerate throatily. I smell exhaust and dust. I hunch under a slow, penetrating drizzle. I squint up the road as sunlight angles into my eyes. I watch snow floating down. The collar of my school shirt rubs against my neck. For the next few years, I'll spend hours waiting at this bus stop, feeling bored, feeling resentful and angry, feeling anxious. Things have changed since I was six. The external landscape and the internal one too. I'm anxious about things happening at school and things happening at home. The world is starting to press in on me. I worry about homework, my parents' relationship, the fact that the bus never seems to arrive. Most mornings I grapple with the impossible decision of whether to take the 10-minute walk to the stop in the village, where I could get the 108B as well as the 75, or whether to stay where I am. The problem being that if I set off on that 10-minute walk, the 75 will almost certainly appear when I'm stranded halfway between the two stops. It's a dilemma. Hours of my childhood are spent torn between staying and going, between the conservative option of waiting and the reckless gamble of setting out up that hill. I last waited at that bus stop maybe 40 years ago, 
but the boredom and the anxiety, the dilemma of whether to trudge up that hill, the nostalgia for the simplicity of primary school, it's all still there in my head. So is the noise of the cars, the exhaust and the dust, the slow drizzle, the dazzle of the sunlight, the snow floating down. Unreliable memories that seem to have actual substance, texture and weight. It's physical topography, but it's emotional topography too. I wrote my first novel, A Chinese Summer, in my early twenties, and my second, The Alchemist, in my mid-twenties. I was living in North London by that time, but simultaneously, I was still living in Blackheath. I was still walking to primary school and waiting at the 75 bus stop, and going to the fireworks party in the estate opposite my house, and sitting outside the house by the rockery when I forgot my key, and walking out of the village past the church, setting sail on a sea of grass onto the endless heath, dotted by ponds and crisscrossed by roads, and catching the train into London on my own, travelling through Lewisham and New Cross to London Bridge, Waterloo and Charing Cross, which felt like a rite of passage, becoming an adult. So A Chinese Summer and The Alchemist were set, at least in part, in the dreamlike Blackheath of my childhood, because they couldn't have been convincingly set anywhere else. Using that setting gave my writing two kinds of authenticity. There was the kind that you might expect to find in a thorough guidebook, because I was an insider who knew the place intimately, and there was emotional authenticity, which you'd be more likely to find in a child's passionate, excited and probably inaccurate chatter about a place they know and love. When I was writing those novels, Blackheath was an actual physical space that I knew well. It was an emotional space that I just had to close my eyes to inhabit, and it was an unreal space that only existed in memories unique to myself. It's a nice bit of south-east London, but it's also a seething cauldron of memory and emotion that I'll keep returning to as long as I keep writing. That was Mark Illis. Next, here's Claire Fisher on Leeds. It's not that I have no sense of direction, it's more that I have an incredibly well-developed sense of misdirection. I get lost not only when visiting new parts of new cities, but in the parts of cities I ought to know like the back of my hand. Who, by the way, ever looks at the back of their hand? I even get lost in friends' houses, trying to exit through the broom cupboard instead of the door, even if I've been there a hundred times before. When I first moved to Leeds, I was capital L lost. I'd moved up from London to live with my boyfriend and start a teacher training programme. Writing, that ridiculous dream, would never work out. I miss my friends. I miss my friends so much. I miss being able to walk for hours without hitting a ring road or a motorway. I missed waiting, at most, five minutes per tube, rather than standing at a cold, windy bus stop for 42 minutes, only for the countdown to announce the bus as due, then reset to 42 minutes without said bus ever appearing. The only logical conclusion to this all-too-frequent occurrence was, I eventually decided, that most of Leeds' bus service must have been serving ghosts. Sick of waiting, I'd stomp to the next stop, and the next, and the next, and when still no buses were in sight, I'd stomp some more, obsessively cataloguing my day's various shortcomings, the caretaker telling me off for wasting taxpayers' money by allowing students to throw stationery out of the window was a particular high-low point, until I cried. I cried because I felt like a ghost in my own life, and I didn't know why. I cried because I wished I was at least the sort of ghost that could get the bus.
Occasionally, however, I'd peer over the edge of my despair just enough to notice there was, actually, a world outside it. The division between city and country, wildness and tameness, was far more blurred than in London, in which almost every patch of land was catalogued, pruned, built on, and if it wasn't, thousands of other people were flocking to it, looking at it, opening pop-up craft beer stores on it. The school at which I mostly failed to teach was situated in the middle of an estate on a hilly edge of Leeds. There were lots of trees, a considerable number of which were poking through the broken windows of derelict factories. There were views of Kirkstall Abbey's ruins, of the canal and the river wharf snaking along the bottom of the valley. Also, less romantically, of arterial roads, big box stores and drive-through restaurants. There was the occasional shire horse tied to what in London would be called something like a micro-park, but here was just another patch of brambly green. The more I looked, the more I saw, and at some point I began to notice the gaps between the houses, how many there were, and how they led, not to fenced-off gardens and garages, but where? I was curious to find out, so I ventured away from the bus route. The gap revealed itself to be the beginning of an alley so long and thin that in its gloomy middle I began to fear, one, that it would never actually end, and two, that someone would enter from the opposite direction, trapping me, mugging me, or worse or worse. A few minutes later, however, and I emerged in a street of red brick terraces that looked to me like almost every other street in Leeds. I had no idea where I was or in which direction I ought to travel, if I wanted to get home, not even after staring for ages at the bobbing blue dot on my phone. My boyfriend, whose uncannily strong sense of direction had no doubt made mine even worse, couldn't understand the tardiness of my return. I don't try to get lost, I said, but I suspect my unconscious is. I tried to explain how, after walking down three different alleys, only to end up at the corner shop by the school where all the kids bought radioactive fizzy drinks each morning, I felt, not despair, even though I had, after all, ended up where I'd begun, but joy. I wanted to advance a theory about happiness beginning at a plan's ending, about learning with my body that there was more than one way to reach the destination. But he cut me off. A ginnel, he said. I think you mean a ginnel. What's a ginnel? I asked. The Yorkshire word for alley. Oh no, he said. A ginnel and an alley are totally different. Totally different. I've lived in Leeds for six years since. In that time, I've had almost as many different houses and jobs. I've written and published two books. Written and not published a few more. Started a PhD ended the relationship that brought me here to begin with and forged all sorts of new ones. All I can say is that I now know the difference between an alley and a ginnel. An alley, well, an alley is an alley, and there are lots of alleys and leads. They're cobbled, and they run between the Victorian terraces that make up a large part of the city. There are grassy alleys, like the ones that run between my current house and one of the untamed patches of green that stripe the city, Woodhouse Ridge. An alley can comfortably fit two people, a few bikes, a stray cat and lots of bins. A ginnel, however, well, a ginnel contains a bigger pinch of the unknown. Its walls are higher, narrower, clammier, making for a space that is at once public and private. In my last house, the journey to almost everywhere was made considerably shorter by venturing down one. It was long, thin, often wet and muddy occasionally strewn with discarded needles, bras and, once, a bright yellow pair of trousers. 
At first, I'd traipse the long way, up the main road, inhaling traffic fumes that would probably do me more damage than any imaginary mugger. Then something happened, and I don't know if it was as simple as walking up and down the same slippery flagstones day after day, or if finally starting to acknowledge my queerness was setting me free in this small, everyday ways. But there came a point when the ginnel was the start and the end of almost every journey I made. I walked it in the dark, sloshed through its puddled floor in the rain, watched the sun glint off its graffitied walls whilst rolling home from a party around sunrise. At one end, the millstone terrace of which my house was part. At the other, the stone folly and grilled windows of the bear pit, the only remaining relic of the Victoria Pleasure Garden that had long since been replaced by flats, houses and student halls. The bear pit had been a last-ditch attempt to save the Pleasure Garden from financial ruin. It didn't work. When I popped out of the ginnel, I'd usually stare at it whilst waiting to cross the road. Its bramble darkness exudes a mystery, a sense that life could have gone a different way, or might still, if only we'd let it. Then I'd try to imagine the bears chained behind its railings. I'd try to imagine finding pleasure in watching them. I'd fail. Sometimes, though, I'd see kids starting towards it whilst their mums push their younger siblings in a buggy, or teenagers smoking on the low stone wall that separates it from the pavement. I'd wonder whether they, too, extract some sort of pleasure from this strange and slightly horrible anachronism. I now know the difference between a ginnel and an alley. I know lots of ginnels and lots of alleys, even more since the newly outdoorsy life that is lockdown. But I still don't know them all, not even in the areas I believe I know well. Just the other day, a friend showed me a series of ginnels that make up a whole new route from Woodhouse Ridge to Meanwood Park. They were cobbled and lush with blackberries, which I picked and ate immediately. A few days earlier, I tried to find a ginnel I remembered as being particularly mysterious and interesting, only for it to refuse to appear at all. Has it been blocked off by some private developer, like so many of them around the city centre? Or had I been too busy looking at my phone to see it? I don't know the answer to these questions. I don't know how many ginnels there are in the mile radius of my house. What I do know is that the inexplicable process of finding and losing and finding and losing again helps me in some strange way to feel lost in a way which feels like home. That was Claire Fisher. You can find out more about Carolyn Smales, Mark Illis and Claire Fisher on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 370, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 371, Paul Dowswell speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about childhood classics, his early career, and knowing what you're good at. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.